Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31, which is also found on page 8 of your bulletin. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none who may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is God's word. We've been looking into the uh, core values of Metro Presbyterian Church, and we've been preaching that throughout the summer. And um, in between some of the core values that we're preaching through, uh, we take the time to remind each other and ourselves of the gospel. And that's what today's passage is about, understanding what the gospel is. The gospel saves you personally, brings you into community, but it doesn't really end there. The gospel really means the good news, but the good news of what? It's the good news of the kingdom. And that's what the book of Luke is about. When Jesus begins his ministry, and we see this um, in other books besides Luke, in the gospel according to the Mark in chapter 1, Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And as a result, repent, he says. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does he mean by that? And I want you to think about this. When one leader, take someone like the president, when the president's administration, his term ends, and a new president comes in to take his place, the entire administration changes. One administration is kicked out pretty much and leaves, and the, admin- the other administration, you know, in the White House, the furniture, you know, the decorations, everything changes. Ever see Beauty and the Beast? In the movie, in the cartoon movie, the animation movie, uh, Beauty and the Beast, you have this kingdom that is ruled um, and, and, you know, it, it shapes people beyond, they become less human. But all of a sudden, once the curse is broken, the new administration comes in, what happens? Everybody's restored and where there was darkness, there's color, where there's cold, there's warmth. Everything changes. Sunlight now enters into the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. There is an overturning. There's furniture that's going to be moving around in this place. There are new rules, new ethics, new codes, new policies, new emphases, new commandments. Do you get that? New commandments. Your definition of order, he's saying, and what you believe is a violation, everything changes. Now they're going to be defined by a new king. They're defined by a new king. The gospel is good news. 
It's good news because on one hand, it's the end of us trying to control our lives because we were never in control in the first place. But on the other hand, it's about us submitting to the king, a king that's good, a king that's perfect, a king that's faithful. And, and as a result, you know, we realize we were never in control in the first place and this king was always in control in the first place. That's good news. That's the reason why it's the end of anxiety. That's the reason why Jesus says, I give you a new peace, a peace that transcends, passes all understanding. And it's also the end of idolatry because, you know, we're so hooked into certain things in our lives and those things rule us. They were once our king. But a new administration has come. It's broken that power. And as a result, there's real, there's real freedom, true freedom. And this, in this parable, it teaches us about what it means then to get this, what it means to get the gospel. Three things we get. We get a new identity. We get identity, a true identity. We get freedom. We get power. Identity, freedom, power. First, we get identity. And we see this in the beginning of the parable. We're introduced to two characters. And the two characters are polar opposites. And forget about polar opposites. They're just complete opposites, stark contrast to each other. The first man is rich, and the other man is poor. The first man is covered in um, fine linens, in royalty, it says. The other person is covered in sores. The first person is feasting sumptuously, it says, the text says. The other person, Lazarus, is longing to eat. The rich man, he has a funeral. He has a funeral. The poor man, um, there's no reference to a funeral. Most likely he died in the streets somewhere. Completely contrasting characters but the biggest contrast and yet the most subtle contrast is what one of these two has a name Lazarus one of these two has a name the other person doesn't have a name and that's not a coincidence that's absolutely intentional by Jesus because if you read if you know anything about the parables if you read any of the parables none of the parables in any of Jesus's gospels these gospels that have been written about Jesus None of the characters have a name. So that's absolutely intentional. None of them has a, the subject never has a proper name except in this parable. This poor man is given a proper name. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus means what? One, helped by God. God is my help. From heaven, Abraham says to the rich man, who's, he says, I'm in agony, he's in agony. From heaven, Abraham says, in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, you wasted your life. What are these things that we should be living for? Lazarus, he's poor, he's naked, he's hungry, he's forgotten by everybody, he's despised by the world. You ever walk by, uh, you ever observe people walking by someone who's homeless? Um, There's usually a, a skewing of the path, complete disregard for what they're asking for or, or, or requesting right? They, they were despised. He was most likely despised by the people around him, um, not even given a proper barrel. But his name is God is my help. God is my help. What does that mean? In other words, God is my ultimate good. God is my sum of worth. I'm worthless to the world around me, but God is the sum of my worth. You know, his good things were eternal. His good things were lasting. His good things were supernatural. But this rich man, what were his good things? They were his wealth. They were his riches. They were his status, his titles. And as a result, he had no no name. He had no name. Those were his names. 
The reason the rich man had no name was because that's all he was. He was just a rich man. The wealth was gone. Once the wealth is gone, and once he loses himself, you know, once he dies, he had no name. He is unknown. To have a name, to have an identity, it's to know who you are. Do you know who you are? It's to know that you're valuable. It's to know where you're going. It's to know who you are. It's to know you're valuable. It's to know where you're going. For instance, if you build your life on God, if God is the sum of your identity, if God is the source of your identity, then all the circumstances in the world, whether you lose or whether you gain, what's going to happen? You're still going to have a you at the end. You can be immensely rich, very wealthy, but you still have a you. You're not just a rich man. On the other hand, you can lose all of your wealth. You can lose uh, the sum of all that you once thought was your worth, but you still have a you. You still have a self. Lazarus is a great example. Lazarus, um, uh, the, the things, the circumstances of the world, they didn't affect who he was. It didn't affect his value. It didn't affect where he was headed. Um, he had nothing, but he still had a name. He had a self. And he went through the most dramatic change, the most drastic change that anybody could go through. He died, and yet he still had a self. The rich man, on the other hand, had no name. If you build your life on anything other than God, what does this rich man show you? If you build your life on your career, on just the notion of being stable in life, and however you get stable, if you build your life around your children, if you build your life on a love relationship, you know, if you build your life on your gifts and your talents, your titles, you, or your reputation. Some people hold so tightly to their reputation and their pride, and if they just, you know, if someone slights them, if, if, or if someone's rude to them, or if someone, um, you know, uh, embarrasses them in some way, they just, just life falls apart. Um, something comes to jeopardize their lives, and what happens? They're not just unhappy. They're devastated. They lose themselves completely. They don't, they realize, they don't know their worth anymore. They don't know if they're valuable. They don't know, you know, they don't know where they're headed. So it's more than just being unhappy. Know who you are. You know, this rich man, once he lost his life, there was no you left. He was just a rich man. To get the gospel first, to get the gospel first and foremost is to have an identity. So the question goes like this, who are you? Do you know who you are? Do you really know who you are? Are you willing to go as deep as this text is actually proposing that you go? Because it takes us very, very deep. Do you have a name? Or is your name mother? Or is your name successful? Or is your name father? Or is your name musician or singer? Or is your name hipster or popular or beautiful or minister or doctor? or influential. What is your name? You know how you tell what your name is? How do you tell what your name is? Something happens that runs you off course. Like, the La- like Lazarus or like this rich man. It feels like death. Something happens that completely throws you off course and it, it just feels like death to you, like you've died. And how you respond to that reveals what your name is. You know, um, the moment you lose your job, the moment um, you got passed over for a promotion, the moment someone builds competition in your life, 
the moment you miss a payment. It could be something as trite as that in some ways. The moment your significant other breaks up with you, you melt down. Do you melt down? Do you, does your life just completely fall apart? The moment someone slides you, do you just melt down? That shows you what your name is. The thing that triggers the meltdown, that's your name. That's your name. Lazarus, he's loved by God. He has a name. Um, he's poor, but he's rich. He's hungry, but he's filled. No one buried him, and yet he's absolutely loved and accepted because he's known by God. He's got an identity. You know, um, the earth didn't receive him well, but he was received by God. Now, what else do you get? You get an identity. You get freedom. The second point is you get freedom. The rich man, well, let's start. In verse 23, the rich man's in hell. He's in agony. He's in torment. And he looks up. And notice, he calls, he doesn't say, you you guys are all jerks. That's not what he says. He says, Father Abraham. He says, Father Abraham. He looks up. And now some of you are sitting there, it's inevitable with a crowd at least this large. Some of you are going to say, well, I don't really believe in hell. I never really thought about it, but do I really believe in hell? Others of you, outside, just outward, just reject it. You know, but do you get it? Do you get what's going on here? This passage tells us remarkable things not just about hell, but about what hell is inside of us. It's blindness, complete blindness. Three things, very quick things. First, this rich man says to Abraham, send Lazarus down to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. That's what he says, for I'm in anguish. I'm dying here. So send Lazarus to dip his finger uh, and water and to cool my tongue. And uh, this, that command is really a job specifically intended for a servant or even a slave. Um, and if it, you have to remember the context. The rich man, when he was alive, the rich man used to be on top. Lazarus was at the bottom. But all of a sudden, there was a reversal of fortune. And now Lazarus is on top and this rich man is actually at the bottom, right? That's what's really happening, on, happening here. Yet what's going on here? The rich man is still ordering Abraham to command Lazarus to come down and be his servant. That's what the rich man's doing. He's acting as if he's still on top because he's got status. He's got authority. He's got wealth. So I'm still on top, he says. And he doesn't see who he really is. He doesn't know himself, so he doesn't see who he is. You know, he understands agony. He says, I'm, 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 in, I'm in pain here. But he's absolutely blinded what's happened to him why is that why is that he's still defining his identity as his position as his title as his wealth he's just a rich man the second thing the rich man says because he says three things here the second thing he says send Lazarus to warn my brothers you know he says I have five brothers um, and they need a proper warning what does that imply and that's basically what he's saying here they need a proper warning you know, someone send somebody there to appear before them. Um, what is he implying here? I didn't get a proper warning. No one came to me and told me about all this and what was going to happen to me. I didn't get a proper warning. And, and uh, you know, what he's doing is he's blaming Abraham. He's blaming God. He's making excuses. He's completely blind. So one, he's blind to who he is, his place. Um, but he doesn't, he's blind to his responsibility, the ownership 
you know, who he is in the fact that he doesn't take ownership of what he's been and how he's lived his life. The third thing he does is he asks Lazarus to come. And he, he says, come and help me. Come and help me. Right? But he never asks, get me out of here. He says, come, send Lazarus to help. But he never asks for forgiveness. He never says, I was wrong. And this is a remarkable thing. He doesn't see his sin. He's blind to her sin. He's blind to who he is. He's blind to what he's done. He's blind to just the deep inward uh, self-righteousness. You know, he says, Father Abraham. He still calls Abraham father. He doesn't see his sin. He's commanding Abraham. He's ordering Lazarus. He's blaming God, making excuses. You know, he can't ask for forgiveness. Have you ever met anybody like that? Have you ever been there like that? You know, um, it's a symptom of a person who doesn't really know himself. It's a symptom of a person who's lost himself. And this tells us something very remarkable about hell. We used to think that hell is this place where if you do enough bad things in life and you don't make up for that, um, once you die, uh, you ever see a 19, what is it, 1995, a movie, uh, a sleeper movie that was nominated for Best Picture, the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. Uh, and uh, she's a short-haired Demi Moore, not long-haired Demi Moore, um, and a uh, very different person. Uh, and uh, <laughs> um, what happens is in the movie, uh, you see the two people die you know, throughout the course of the movie. When the second person dies, um, these black things come out of the ground and, ah, and carries them away. It scared the heck out of me when I was you know, younger. Um, and uh, we, our view of hell is that. Our view of hell is when you die, um, this big oven opens up, you know, and all of a sudden you feel this gravitational pull and everyone, oh, we fall in and we're like, no. And God stands there and says, and closes the oven and shuts it. And then he, and he's, he, you know, he, and then he shuts the shutters and then he pulls down the shades and then he's like, and, 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 and the steam pumping out and people are like, no, no, no. But that's not what hell is here. Over dramatic. That's not what hell is here. That's not hell. You notice, um, uh, something remarkable about hell. Um, the rich man doesn't ask to get out. Hell is a place we're not thrown into. It's a place we've chosen to go. Every one of us, the Bible says, hell begins at birth. And through the course of your life, emerges into what ultimately becomes hell in our lives. What do I mean by that? Notice, the rich man says, I'm suffering. He doesn't ask to get out. He's chosen his identity. You know, think about it. Have you ever experienced jealousy in your life? Jealousy. Or something easier, lie. We've all lied. Experienced a lie in your life? You know, have you been lied to or you do lie? What happens? It starts with a lie. You start to learn how to lie as a child. And if you're not properly disciplined, and you're going to, even if you are, um, the circumstances are going to tempt you, and you're going to continue to grow and grow and grow and lie until eventually what happens? You know, the lies become your life. The lies become your life. And if you continue to live in a lie, what happens? You know, your world, everything around you, whether it's crumbling or growing or whether you, it's all a masquerade, it's all a charade until your life becomes a lie. And that's what hell is. It starts with a complaint, a grumble. You're complaining about, you know, people don't start on time. People, you know, you know, they stay too long. We don't end on time. You know, what's wrong with us here? It starts with a grumble. Over time, the grumble grows and grows and grows. 
And after a while, it turns into blaming and, ex- and, ex- and making excuses, not being able to accept responsibility. And if everybody else's responsibility, and pretty soon your life becomes a grumble. Your life becomes a grumble, and when you die, what do you think happens? It's a grumble. That's what life is. Life becomes a, life becomes a lie. Life becomes a grumble. And in hell, here's this rich man. He says, I was not given the proper um, lessons. I was not taught enough. I was not, I was not approached properly. He's still blaming. He says, Lazarus, come down and help me. He still thinks he's on top. In each and every one of us, the Bible's teaching us, it starts out with jealousy. It starts out with the complaining. It starts out and grows and grows until eventually we're always complaining. We're always blaming other people. We may even be self-critical. We're beating ourselves up to the ground. Eventually, you're not going to be able to stop. You become the grumble. That's hell. It's an addiction. It's like an addiction. You know what an addiction is? An addiction is when your heart and your mind and your body and your soul is disintegrating and at the same time you're alienating yourself from everything else around you. You're in isolation. That's what it is. That's what an addiction is. And look at this man. Think about it. If you live 80 years like that, you know, you might have some wins and losses. You might not go that far. But imagine if you live 10,000 years like that. Imagine if you live 1 million years like that. In addiction, in pride, in malice, the things that you look to, you think these things are going to make you feel better? And that's why we lie. We think we can get away. It makes us feel better. Why do we go into addiction? Why do we feel jealous? Why do we punish people in our minds? Why do we desire to punish them? You know, because we just can't forgive them. We're holding on to our anger because it makes us feel good. But if you let that continue, it grows and grows until it becomes hell for us. You can't stop. It disintegrates you. It consumes you. That's why the rich man, it says he's in a fire. Fire is all-consuming. He's disintegrating. But at the same time, it's alienating. You know, you start out with self-pity, and you're blaming people, and you're making excuses, and you're cutting people off uh, until only the addiction is left. That's the disintegration. But the rich man, he says, God, help me. You know, what does Abraham say to him? There is a chasm that has been fixed that we cannot cross. You can't cross it. I can't cross it. In other words, we're isolated. You're isolated. You're alone. Have you ever taken a lie all the way to the end? You know what happens? You've probably experienced it in some ways in life. You end up alone. Have you ever taken jealousy all the way to the end? On one end, it's consuming. But on the other end, what happens is the people around you, you start to lose credibility. Have you ever taken anger all the way to the end, at least to a certain degree in your life? You start to lose credibility. People start to say, well, we can't really trust what he's saying about this person anymore because he's just angry. He's just really angry. It consumes you. It isolates you. The rich man is far away. And Abraham says, I can't. There's a chasm. There's a chasm. You know, um, you're, you're more self-centered, you're more self-absorbed, you're more self-pitying, you're still blaming other people. What's happening? You're building an incredible wall around you. Eventually, no one, no one's going to be left around. No one's going to be left around to help you. You're going to be alone. In Romans chapter 1, to sum up this part, the text, you know, the Apostle Paul writes that all God really does, you know, is give you over to what you really want. All God does is really give you over to what you really want in the end. And I'm going to paraphrase a quote that's written in the bulletin. You know, it's Tim Ke- I'm paraphrasing Tim Keller, who's paraphrasing uh, C.S. Lewis, okay? But mainly what he says is this. He says, 
you know, at the end, there's only two types of people. There are types, it was one type of person that says, Lord, thy will be done. And the other type of person is to whom the Lord says, your will be done. That's what hell is. Hell is a place that we've chosen. Hell is a place that we've, uh, you know, and the reason why we've chosen is because when we go certain ways, we make certain decisions, we want to be our own person, we want to live on our own, we say, if I go this way, I f-. the reason why we do it is because we feel more free. We feel like if we go this way, if we just justify ourselves, it's going to open up our options. If I take this, this, make this decision, you know, yeah, it's not, it's not good, but I'm going to make this decision. It's going to open, us, open our options, open our potential, open our freedom, maybe even result in opening up greater joy, but it's not going to happen. You know, Tim Keller says, hell is the greatest monument of American freedom there is. The greatest monument. It's the greatest monument of self-justification, if you think about it. Because the thing that you thought was going to open up opportunities, open up options and freedom and potential and joy is actually decreasing your opportunities, decreasing your options and freedom and potential and joy. That's what hell is. The greatest monument of self-justification. But the gospel gives us freedom. Lazarus on earth had no options. He had no potential. He had no freedom. He was covered in sores and he died. He didn't even have clothes. And yet his death brought greater freedom, greater options, greater potential, greater joy because he had a name. He's helped by God. Whereas the rich man, he was hooked hooked into things that he thought would give him freedom. And as a result, he lost his freedom. So how do you get it? How do you get freedom? Where do you get the power to get the gospel, to get this freedom, to get an identity? The rich man says, you know, I know what it takes. I get it. Here's my proposal, okay? Send Lazarus to my brothers, okay? That way they can be free. Let them approach them properly. And, and Abraham says, you don't know how to solve the problem. You have no idea. That's what he's saying. Because you want, you think that if we can scare them, you know, if a dead man who's risen again could save them, uh, scare them, that they would be, you know, through fear that they would transform, and they can't. And they won't. It doesn't work. If you live your life using fear, parents, you've got to think about this for your children. If you live your life using fear as the means by which you're going to transform your children, it's not going to work. You know, if Lazarus showed up to uh, this man's five brothers, it's like Jacob Marley and Charles, classic Dickens, right? Jacob Marley approaches, oh, you know, and then, you know, you know the main character, uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, is brought into fear he sees everything and is afraid and he's scared into transformation and uh, the bible is absolutely counter to that because what it says is uh, you know if you live your life using your fear and punishment and guilt to to just beat people up um, they may change for a short term but it's not going to last it's actually going to breed resentment and it's going to breed disenchantment and distrust what abraham says is They've got Moses and the prophets. Why does he say that? He says, even if someone rises from the dead, it's not going to scare them into transformation. They've got Moses and the prophets. In other words, you know, it's not enough that I died for you. You have to know why I died. You got to go to Moses and the prophets. It's not enough that I just died and rose again. Seeing that, yeah, it's going to scare you. It's not going to change you. You got to know why I died. And you know why I died? 
Jesus says, love. Love transforms identity. Love is the power by which you change. Why is that? Think about that. Why is that? Why do we build our identity on things that we do? Our work, our relationships. You know, sometimes we build our identity around our rights, you know, politics. Why do we build our identity around things like that? It's the reason why is because we're looking for acceptance. We're looking for belonging. That's probably the crass way of saying it because it's a lot more complex than that and it's a lot deeper than that. But the main reason is it's us and I feel right here. I feel justified this way. And they don't because they're not this way. That's, and that, you know, it, that's what fear does. Fear makes us versus them, right? Uh, guilt makes it us versus them. But we need a greater truth. You're not going to change that way. The, the heart's constantly going to say, but you need this, you need this. You need to be approved by your friends. You need to be approved by that one person who says, I've loved you, I've loved you, you're beautiful. You, you're always going to be accepted. We want to hear that, we want to know that, we want to experience that so deeply, and we'll do whatever it takes to get there. If, if you know, guaranteeing security is going to get me that, I'm going to go for it. If having a nice salary is going to get me that one beautiful person who's going to say, I love you, I love you, I'm going to go for that. Whatever the reason is, our heart's going to tell us we need it. And we need, here Jesus is saying, you need Moses and the prophets. That's what you need. You need a greater truth that's going to overcome that gravitational pull of success, the gravitational pull of the salary, the gravitational pull of beauty. You know, if I could just look good, then I'll be loved, then I'll be noticed, then I'll be acknowledged. Why Moses and the prophets? In your call to worship, you have printed there Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 7. That's a prophet, probably one of the most renowned prophets in the Old Testament. Definitely one of the top three, I would say. One of the three most well-documented. And Isaiah is particular because Isaiah was the greatest orator of his age. And that's why it's so significant. I mean, I can go into the whole nuances of, the, of how he starts out the book of Isaiah. But um, meditate, let's, let's take a look briefly at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 to 7. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know what that means? You know, he was the one that everybody bypassed. He was the one that everybody disdained. Jesus was the one that everybody looked, you know, looked over. Jesus is the one that everybody rejected. He was despised and rejected by men. This is what it means to meditate on the word. And as one from whom hide, men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. You know what that means? And he can go on and on. He was covered with sores. He was covered with sores. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked. On the cross, he was covered with sores. He was beaten to a pulp even before he got to the cross. And he was despised and mocked and scoffed even by the criminal that was crucified next to him. That was Jesus. In other words, well, why did he do that? Why did he do that? Jesus says here, you have Moses and the prophets. Meditate on that. Meditate on my love. Experience my love. That's what's going to pull you away from this gravitational pull of everything else that is worldly. That's what he says. Why? Why? Everything else is going to lead to an addiction. That's what this text is saying. And that's going to disintegrate you or it's going to alienate you, most likely both. It's going to make you a scoffer and a mocker. You're going to despise people. You're going to, dis you're going to be a detestable person, and you're going to be a detesting person. 
And if you're doing that now, you know what's going to happen. You know what's happening. You're experiencing that. You're experiencing disintegration. You're experiencing isolation. It's going to crescendo into eternity, and that's called hell. But Jesus says, you want to know my love? Meditate on Moses. Meditate on the prophets. You're going to see how much I suffered for you. It's going to shape you. It's going to change you. Because my suffering, this part was not printed in Isaiah 53, but if you read on in Isaiah 53, he says, to his satisfaction, he did this. In other words, all the things that I suffered for you was worth it. It's not like Jesus is blind. He knows everything. And yet he says, it's worth it. It was worth it for you. And on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, my God, my God, like the rich man, I am in agony, I am in pain. That's not what he says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, you are my God, you are my center, you are my worship, I have devoted my life to you. You are my sustaining presence. You have, are everything to me. You are everything. You are my wealth. And yet I've lost you. And my life has disintegrated. And you've forsaken me. I am isolated from you. On the cross, Jesus experienced hell for you, for me, for us. He suffered the disintegration and the isolation of hell. He said, I lost my identity. You've forsaken me because, you know, Trinity torn apart. He was God. And yet deposed. I've lost myself. Do you see the cost? Do you see the cost? He was forsaken for us. My favorite book um, all time is uh, Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice. The essence of Pride and Prejudice, without going into the book, what happens? You have this Christ figure, Darcy the most perfect man in the whole world, right? At least in literature, in American literature. And he is in love with probably the most complex woman in all of, uh, in all of literature, at least I think, you know, one of the most complex people. You know, he is absolutely in love with her, and yet there's a such, it's, you know, their relationship completely broken. But through a series of circumstances, Darcy comes to see the brokenness in Lizzie Bennet's life. And, um, he's, and he's devastated by that. Such compassion and love for Lizzie Bennet. And so what does he do? He goes and befriends the enemy and sacrifices and gives up. He sacrifices reputation, but he gives up a huge sum of wealth to basically restore the reputation of Lizzie Bennet's family. And at the end, he says what? You have bewitched me, body and soul. He says, you must know it's all for you. Everything I did, it, I did it for you. All of it. And when you hear that, you know, you say, that is love. It moves you. Who isn't moved by that story? And if you're not moved, I'm going to tell you another story, okay? I'm going to tell you just another quick story because I stole this story and I love this story, but I changed it a little bit to fit at least uh, what I'm trying to say here. Uh, let's say one day, as for single people, let's say for single people, one day, um, you know, your friend of the opposite gender shows up and says, I paid a huge bill for you. You must know this. I paid a huge bill for you. Did you know that you owed 
back taxes to the IRS, 30 years worth. You've not paid enough taxes. You, you thought you paid enough, but you paid. Not, you don't realize how much I pay tremendously. 30 years worth of, of back taxes. Now, depending on how much she paid or he paid, you know, if it was like, you know, one year's worth, you'll say, thank you so much. How, I, how can I pay you back? But 30 years, a lifetime's worth of taxes you owe. And, uh, you know, you know, there are two things that are certain in life, death and taxes. The IRS is ready to haul you away, but instead this person stepped in and paid it all in one shot for you. And you ask, why did you do this for me? Why did you do this? And they say to you, you may not have known this, but I've been trying to tell you for years, I'm desperately in love with you. And I can't bear the thought of you suffering. I just can't bear it. So I'll give up what I've got so you don't have to suffer. Wouldn't that melt your heart? Wouldn't that move you? That's got to move you. No matter how detesting, no matter how cold you've become, that's got to melt you. Jesus is the rich man the ultimate rich man who died and became, he became the poor man and died so that we who are the poor man when we die could be ultimately rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I just reinterpreted it for you, but that's what it's saying. It's in the Bible. The ultimate love story. Psalm 22, Jesus says, the dogs have circled me. In other words, you know, Lazarus, the dogs licked his sores. The dogs, they're getting ready. They're licking their chops. Lazarus was hungry. In the Psalms it says, my tears have been my food day and night. I'm, I'm swallowing the suffering. That was Jesus' food. And he did it all for us because he says, you've bewitched me, body and soul. Body and soul. He was forsaken by God. And he says, it was worth it. Will you listen to Moses and the prophets? Will you listen? You need to know why he died. Don't let your guilt distract you from that. Don't let your suffering distract you from that. Don't let what you should have done, but you didn't do, what you didn't do, but you should have done. Don't let it distract you from that. Don't let your lack of generosity distract you from that. But what happens as the gospel goes deeper, when you say, will you accept me? Not because of what I've done, but what Jesus did. Not based on my record, but Jesus' record. Not based on my love for God, because come on, let's face it, not all of us love God all the time. If you're honest with yourself, we don't. We don't. But based on God's love for us. You know what happens? The more we plant the truth that Jesus says, he's on the cross, he says, I've done it and it was worth it for you. You start to serve other people. You become the rich man who serves the poor man. And that's really the foundations on which this church has been built. We want to be the rich man no matter where we are, whether it's rich in talent, rich in wealth, rich in wisdom, but we want to give to the city because the city, there's so many needy places that beg for our compassion. We can serve others. I wish I could go into it, 
but I'm not for the sake of time. Will you be drawn into the love of Christ so that it will change you? Listen to Moses and the prophets. Reflect on these words this week. Let's pray.